Hello everyone. Today we're at the East Hampton home of world-renowned landscape designer Edwina von Gaal. Edwina von Gaal focuses on natural and sustainable design and has worked with individuals of some acclaim such as Calvin Klein, Cindy Sherman and Ina Garten. Edwina is the founder of the non-profit organization The Perfect Earth Project, which promotes toxic-free lawns and landscapes. Hi Edwina. Hi. Thank you so much for inviting us to your home, first of all. I would like to start at the beginning. Where did your passion for nature and interest in horticulture start? Well, I grew up in the countryside in Putnam County. Um, my grandmother, who lived not far away, had, she was a passionate gardener. So she had, and my dad grew vegetables, and my mom was the president of Garden Club. And as kids in those days, everybody had chores, so I had to work in the garden. Mm -hmm. And I never, ever thought I would be gardening as a choice, and <laughs> <laughs> not a chore. But, um, but at the same time, I spent so much of my childhood outdoors. I had five brothers and sisters, but I was the five. Yeah, but I was the Great. the bookish one. Right. You know, so I spend a lot of time with books just off on my own, and I like to read outdoors and crawl right. under shrubs and things, and and just we just we were just outdoors all the time, and right. I think that's a really important formative component, and I feel I wish every kid could have that. I kind of share that um, sentiment because when I grew up we were surrounded by nature all the time. My grandmother had a garden and we were always in the garden and there were frogs and you know bugs and bees and bumblebees and and that was such a, a great memory and how did that interest in horticulture go from a, a passion to eventually your job or career? Well I, I thought I would be a scientist so I mostly studied science in school and I didn't know about this the design side of me and right. until I started working after school but then I was a, I was a single mom at, at after a while and um, so I was had to get uh, you know, real jobs and I was working for a, a real estate management company mm -hmm. and they had a lot of really amazing properties but at that point nobody really paid much attention to the landscape part. Mm -hmm. So if, and I was gardening at home. Right. And so if anything needed gardening, they would just say, oh, give it to Edwina, you know. <laughs> and, it, and so they, they just, like, I got to do things that are, were way beyond my skill set. <laughs> but I learned, I just because nobody knew the difference. Right. And so I was designing, I just started, they just say, oh, like, hey, like, we just bought this, like, Golf, they bought a golf club at one point and said, could you just, like, just do something <laughs> with, the, with the landscape around it? And I said, okay. <laughs> what do you think makes you unique in your field? I guess, um, well, one thing that I've been doing it so long, <laughs> because <laughs> when I started, it wasn't really a career. You know, it, it was, um, nobody really hired landscape designers, you know, like, did your grandmother, your, anybody in your family hire a landscape designer? No. Yeah. Not it at just, all. <laughs> gardens just, they just happened, like, you right. work it out, and, 
you put stuff in and and so I but then I started working at about the time when people started getting very conscious of their kind of lifestyle right and that was in the 80s and so being so suddenly they were looking for someone to help them create their lifestyle in their garden so they could right. impress people and I was just lucky to be there then mm-hmm. because I, I don't know that anybody could quite um, mimic my career trajectory now. So what made me different was I think that I was a gardener and a lot of people who design gardens are not as much of a gardener as mm-hmm. me because I just gardened every possible moment or they're gardeners and they don't have uh, um, any contact with the art world and I was lucky because the person I worked for was an, was an art collector mm-hmm. so early on I started getting exposed to art and artists and bringing those two things together but really I'm a geek <laughs> you know, that's what it is. And, you know, I like the way, knowing the way things work. And so I worked for a landscape contractor, and I ran a crew, and I learned it really from the inside out. Right. What I also love about you is that we're now at your home, and you have your own garden, which you call the Marsh House, on the property. And it almost looks like you're living your passion. I do. Right. Shouldn't everybody? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. But <laughs> how, would, how would one not? Especially right. if your passion is about creating spaces. But the, And maybe one other thing that I do a little bit differently from everyone else, and I don't know how I got away with it, mm-hmm. is that I try to design myself out of the, of the design. And what do you so, mean by that? Well, I try not to leave my mark. So that everybody would say, well, that's an Edwina garden because she always does that. Right. And it's more about the place being, the garden being about a combination of architecture and place. Mm -hmm. And then, but the place being the the bigger place. Mm -hmm. And if if you put yourself in between those two major forces, somehow or other, it, it always seems like it's, it's not comfortable, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I want places, my gardens to be really peaceful. Like, you don't feel like you walk outside and, oh my gosh, there's a leaf out of place. Or, <laughs> oh my God, you know, th- this, is, this is, it should just always feel like naturally happy and right. peaceful. And you've worked with, you know, um, big names, <laughs> such as, you know, Calvin Klein, Cindy Sherman, um, in a garden. Can you explain to us how that process of creating a landscape design, how that goes? Well, the, the, the process kind of is generally the same in terms of like the stages, mm-hmm. but, it's all, but it's also really different depending on the client. Right. Like Calvin, he's a designer like to the bone. Yeah. So he couldn't leave anything to I me. Mean. <laughs> <laughs> Except that he didn't know plants. Mm. And so I was really as much just like that. But I brought him the materials, the fabric, so to speak, of, mm. of the process. So I would, I would suggest. But he was so very involved in everything. Right. And, and so, and, and I really love that because 
it's the way a client really gets what they want, and it's a way that their personality, and also, then the garden means a lot to them, right. and they'll care for it because it's alive. Right. And it's going to be their, their member of the family to look after. And, but the way it goes is that first, you know, you, you, you look at what have I got, you know, and, and so what's here? What's the architecture going to be? Usually there's always architecture involved because people seldom decide to do a landscape without an architectural like, project that mm -hmm. started the whole thing. So you need to work with the architect as well to understand what, and, and ideally, like with Calvin, I was, I, he hired me before the architect. So we cited the house. We hired the architect together. It, so it was, that was really fun. Mm -hmm. and, and so, so that way, it's a really wonderful interconnectedness that you can do with the house and the place. Mm -hmm. so, that there's, so first you just, what is the place? And then, so what have you got? If you've got things you want to keep, making sure that they're taken into account. And, um, and then just start sketching and running things by the client and then um, changing it all. <laughs> and then, and then, and then um, start putting it in. And, you, and I like to keep it pretty fluid. I mean, we do a plan, but um, I'm on site a lot. And it's and I don't always put things where I said I would. <laughs> and how do you? Because I know you work a lot with toxic, you know, landscapes and lawns, and and um, try to minimize the use of chemicals. But how does that work in relation to the work you do with your clients? Well, at this point in my career, and this has evolved because I wasn't always in your in your salad days. You. Yeah, <laughs> like when I started out, we, everybody wanted an English border, and that was really kind of the um, the origin of the whole thing of hiring a landscape designer because yeah. that the, the English look became very popular, the the the, the Gertrude Jekyll mixed border, you know, and all of that, and so that was all about knowing a lot of plants that were not necessarily. American. They were the plants that were used in English borders, some of which did well here and some of which did not. But you wanted the latest selection and the most unusual and everything. And that wasn't always the easiest things to grow. Right. And now I'm the reverse of that. I want to grow something that wants to be there. And you picked it because it probably evolved in that spot. And it's not going to need chemicals. It just plain old doesn't. Doesn't even, I mean, lots of times they don't even need watering. They, they don't need anything special. Right. And then the gardens, then I can feel like, I feel they're happier. They're not, they're just, and they have their already built in relationships with the, the birds and the bees. Mm -hmm. And so my clients know that now, that, that if they hire me, that's what they're getting. Right. And, and so that's a nice way to do it. it. It's a different approach than designers who have a look that if you hire that designer, you get that You get a look. certain, yeah, yeah. And that's how some designers have created their careers, that they do, a, they have a look. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what you get. But mine is more about, I have an ethic. Right. And that's what you get. And so that ethic is connected to your nonprofit, the Perfect Earth Project. Yes, it is. What can you tell Very us about so. that? <laughs> what can you tell us about it's, that project? Because well, the two of us, have, like, the, I think of the Perfect Earth Project is almost like this, like, Friend, 
you know, right. that has grown with me as I learned. And, and the fact of doing it has taught me so much. So it was really, I actually did a project in Panama. And it was a, a, a museum of biodiversity with mm -hmm. Frank Gehry. And they asked me to come because I, they knew I was a plant-based person. And, and so I got to started working on getting to know the plants of Panama and all the native plants. So I got interested in this whole concept. And we started, we, we started a small nonprofit out in the countryside. Mm -hmm. It just evolved, you know, <laughs> and that we, that to help the farmers replant with native plants and their highly degraded lands. And the people were saying, well, you have to use chemicals. And I was saying, but does that make sense? Like, these are native plants. Why would we use chemicals right. to grow native trees? What kind of chemicals? Like herbicides, um, pesticides? Well, synthetic, or, um, synthetic uh, fertilizers. Right. And then pesticides, they would use pesticides because, and I kept saying, well, why do you need them? And they said, well, the trees won't grow straight without them. There's, hmm. There are borers and things that will go in and infect this. And I said, well, what if that's their natural way? Right. Why do we care if they grow straight or not? And they said, well, then they're not as valuable. And I said, well, valuable to who? Right. We're doing this to, to preserve habitat for the critically endangered Azuero spider monkey. And the spider monkey doesn't, doesn't care. care. And they said, oh, well, we do it for timber. And I said, but this isn't timber. This is habitat. And so I realized that this, this agricultural product model had unthinkingly been applied to environmental restoration without it kind of getting rethought. Right. And where do you think that idea of you know, creating neat and kind of tidy landscapes and lawns comes from? It sounds intense, but I think it comes from fear. Okay. Because... People are working with something or what's outside their door. They don't know what it is anymore. And it goes back to that, like, growing up in the country, hmm. feeling comfortable being alone outdoors. Right. And then the fact that I know all the names of all the plants and pretty much everywhere I go, or at least I know enough. I think people are, they buy a house or something. Outside their door is this party going on, and they don't know a single person there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, how does that make you feel? not comfortable. Right. So if you could dress them all in clothes you recognized or something, or you could cloak them in, in something that felt that you felt you were in control of the situation, and that's how landscaping as a business model has thrived. Right. So they've now figured out like these three or four components of a landscape, hmm. and they can control them, and every time you walk out, your landscape basically looks the same. Hmm. And so you recognize it as a series of shapes. So if everything is a square or, or a ball right. or a spire mm -hmm. or a flowering, something that you know, the three plants you know, and then everything else is killed, basically. Right. And, and so I call it like that's your outdoor living room, but it's dead. It's not living. Right. And you've observed previously that kind of we live in a time where we suppress everything we don't like. Mm -hmm. And we try to invigorate what we do like. Yeah. And it kind of feels like we're very far removed from nature. Very far. Um, at, the, at the moment. What, what is the solution? 
well, that's what perfect Earth is trying to fit, trying to do, you know? and um, and it's been this interesting trajectory because when I started it, I was really just focusing on the fact that lawns were so toxic, and um, I, I might, but everybody said, well, you can't do a lawn without chemicals, and I said, well, let's try. So I got right. some of my clients to say, yeah, we'll try. So I learned how to learn what that meant. What does it mean? It it means that. Um, you need to let your grass grow taller so that it has more capacity to shade out the weeds. Mm -hmm. It means that you should probably allow clover to fix nitrogen in your lawn. And you should leave your grass clippings because all of those things, that's the, if you keep cutting the grass and taking it away, then it's a constant extraction and you got to put something back. Right. So, but if you put the grass itself back, that's the best food you could give it. That's its right. own food. And clover fixes nitrogen. So between the two of them, you, depending on your soil, you probably don't need to add any supplemental fertilizers. And from cutting it high and watering correctly, which hardly anybody does, um, you don't get diseases. So this is something that every gardener at home you know, could do or could implement. Yeah, and it costs less. Right. And I, don't, I think that a lot of people don't, don't know about that. Right. No, they don't, because they're going to be told by the garden center they sh where they shop. That or they the should buy. They should buy their products. Right. Of course. And um, what about bugs? Well, there, are a lot of, there probably will be a lot of people who buy chemicals to mm -hmm. get rid of bugs. Mm -hmm. What would you say to those people? In most cases, those bugs are not a problem. They're just not. I mean, because, for instance, like people use... Um, a lot of chemicals to kill uh, uh, grubs in their lawn that eat, and and they that's. But if their lawn is grown properly and watered properly, they're not going to have many grubs. It just doesn't because the roots get down deep and goes below the grubs. And maybe there'll be a little patch of grubs now and then, but they they'll move through. Like it, it it's not like big dead areas of grubs that people have because it's a cycle of dependency that mm -hmm. you're constantly cutting your lawn too short, trying to green it up too early, then you get fungus problems. And then you put a fungicide down, right. and the fungicides are some of the most harmful um, chemicals that can come into contact with your body. They're mm -hmm. endocrine disruptors. Okay. And when you tell guys that endocrine disruption causes erectile dysfunction, they start oh, to think about that. it. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> so, but anyway, but, but then the fungicides kill the nematodes. Nematodes are the natural predators of grubs. Mm -hmm. And so then you, you just set this natural system out of whack. Right. And there are so many examples of that in the typical conventional land care practices that we do because they're all designed to sell more products, sell more services. Okay, and it does seem like there are a lot of different elements involved. Does the Perfect Earth Project um, offer, you know, help with that? Because I can imagine that for the everyday gardener, this is quite a lot to digest. It is a lot. Uh, and yeah, and so we're, this is what we're working on now because it went from just me talking to people, talking to my right. clients, and, trying to put out a website that had some information on it, but to a really like big demand. And for, I just assumed when I started out, well, if we start asking, the landscapers are going to re respond. You know, they're going to yeah. learn how to do this, right. and they're going to respond. But I didn't realize how much I was up against there. 
they don't want they don't really want to change they they're locked into a business model it mean it would mean completely retraining hmm. and um, they're they're very um, reluctant to do so so that's what we're trying to figure out is is how can we give the information which is what we're doing now to the homeowner mm-hmm. to the decision maker to insist that they get the kind of services they want mm-hmm. and then be prepared to direct the service industry who's interested right. in getting and so in getting the information and the training they need the trouble is there's too few that are interested Right. So we're really looking at a sort of a different model than I originally thought we would have, is that we're trying to find a younger group of interested people to consider careers in horticulture mm-hmm. and bring horticulture and natural resource pr- protection and restoration cl- and conservation together. So your yard is a conservation project as much as it is a garden. And do you feel like the demand for, your, for those kind of um, services and that, that kind of information that that has grown over the years. Oh, tremendously! Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, huge, and it's exponential. So you're here, right? <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what would you think, as a woman entrepreneur? Yeah. What was the biggest obstacle that you faced? Yeah, being a good parent, being a good boss. You know, trying to hold it all together and still be kind of nice. How did you manage being a good mother? And a well, good entrepreneur. I, think, I think my daughter would probably say mm, maybe seventy-five percent. Because there were times I, I, you know, would have wanted. I, I kind of could have been there more. And looking back, you know, you don't have a manual. Right. Your everyday life. What did it look like? Did you but, have a nanny, or did you? No. Did um, but what I did was, because when I started out, I wasn't making much money, so. It was really like <laughs> scratching by, right. so I always worked it out so that my office was somehow next in my home. Basically, I worked from home, and so I would put my daughter to bed and go back to the office. And so you know, I would be there when she came home from school. Mm. We'd do our after school thing and the homework, and then she'd go back. She'd go to bed, and I'd go back to work. And and, and what about being a good boss? What were the uh, difficulties that you encountered? Well, I guess it's um, it's about being like trying to being demanding, you know, be expecting your staff to have the same level of passion that you do. Right. <laughs> that's a tall order. <laughs> so, do you feel that's a hiring decision? Is it about hiring the same people, or is it about making them enthusiastic about what you do? It's both, but you can't make somebody what they're not. Right. And so some pe- so I've had some wonderful employees in my time in business, and I still do. Do you, do you have some tips about critical hiring? Like what, do you, what, what steps do you go through when you hire an, an employee it's, you know, to it's, make sure that they're passionate about what they do? Yeah, it's, 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 I still always like when you, when you just don't get it right, and then you think, oh, I shouldn't have should asked. should have known. I should have, <laughs> yeah, of course. I didn't ask that right. question. But I, I think that, you know, actually, if, if you have enough staff, just get that person in with your staff and let them talk to them. And, right. and if you have more than a couple people in the office, it's really their choice. Is this person going to fit in? with us and knowing what we're doing. So you would recommend a couple of test days? 
yeah. or newly hired. Yeah, yeah, I think it would probably be good. I think you you got to walk them around the uh, uh, the garden, walk them around your gardens, and mm -hmm. see what questions they ask. To be good at what we do, mm -hmm. you got to be really curious. And that's what I actually really love about you is that you seem like such a free spirit and you follow your passion and you've been really good at it, but you couldn't have done it to this degree if you weren't also a you know, businesswoman. Well, I was lucky because the job I had in New York City working for the real estate company, mm -hmm. I, I had the most amazing boss. He was so not easy to get along with, but yeah. he was um, just, and he always, or everybody who worked for him always would say, well, if you make it through three months, you're going to be with him for a really long time. Because that, you know, that's... That's the kind of It was trial was. by fire. Right. <laughs> and it was like, nobody does that anymore. Like, I used to leave his office in tears right. on a pretty regular basis. But he taught me to pay attention. Right. Like if somebody, like read, how to read an invoice. And so that when people send me quotes for my jobs. I mean, I'm still channeling him to this right. day. Like, oh, this invoice doesn't make any sense. I can't pass this along to a client. No way. How did he teach you that? How did he well, do it? Yeah, how did he... Uh... He could read an invoice and do numbers in his head right. instantly on site. Like, he could add and do... And so he, he was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And so when I... And I was supposed to bring all of the bills to him with the checks made out for him to approve and sign right. of all the different jobs I was doing and everything. And so he would look at one and say, wrong, wrong, this is stupid. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh no. And so my goal was to get through an entire set. This is my personal goal right. without a mistake. And after a while, I learned to do it. The other thing I learned from him, yeah. he taught me how to bid at auction. I really I mean, yeah, I mean, like, amazing stuff. What did he teach you? Kind of by doing, like, first, so we would go through the auction catalogs. Yeah. Because he, he, he owned the Carlisle Hotel, mm -hmm. and he hung all great stuff. In the, and and we, bought, we started buying botanicals oh. and breaking them, which some people don't think is a good idea. But they were always the ones that were okay, like the ones that were, came out in many editions. And we bought art. We bought all kinds of things together for the hotel, for his own home, for the various projects we did. And so, and so we would go, first we'd pick stuff out. And so the smaller auction stuff, I would just, he would just tell Send me, you. this is how you do it. And I would go and bid. And then the bigger stuff, we would go together until he felt like I could do it on my own. And then when did you leave that environment and started? To work for yourself in 1984? In 84, yeah. he said that he felt that my job was going to disappear because he was moving his investments from real estate to money. Okay. To just the financial market. Mm -hmm. where he, and he just said, managing real estate's a lot of work. Right. And um, I'm, I'm really good at the numbers, and I'm just going to focus on that. And I'm like, I don't really need to do this real estate stuff so much anymore. Yeah. And that's what you do. And that means your job will be coming to an end. Mm -hmm. And besides, you should be a landscape designer. And I said, that's not a career. Right. And he said, I think you could make it a career. And so, and he said, just, we talked about how much work I still had to finish up for his. So I had a guaranteed income for a couple of years. Yeah. But I, but I worked for his company as my own company for a couple of years and then started bringing in my own clients. 
And how does that transfer from being an employee to being a, an entrepreneur? I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. <laughs> I know, it's, I had, it's a buzzword now. If Sorry. I had, I probably would have been too nervous to do it. <laughs> right. I, I was a single mom who just needed to keep it going. Right, you in. already had a, a second job, right? <laughs> yeah, but so I was working with a lot of the people I'd already established relationships with. Mm. And, and then I started hiring some part-time help. And, but it wasn't all that different because I had a lot of autonomy in my job. And, and over the course of your career, what has been the most significant success? If there was one garden or one landscape. Oh, it's hard. that's a really... I know. Yeah, I don't even know if I can say <laughs> because each one sort of builds on the next one. But one of the, in terms of like just significant in terms of career, like trajectory, mm-hmm. was one that I did in Sagaponic. I, I was working with a couple for their roof garden, because I started doing roof gardens, obviously, in New York City. And, right. and they said that they had a landscape architect. They were building a house in the country, and they'd hired a landscape architect who didn't know anything about plants. And okay. could I advise them on plants? I suppose you could. And I said, sure, <laughs> I'd be happy to do that. You know, yeah. to, and, and so I started to do that, and the next thing I knew, I had the job. Right. They just, like, it became my job. And so that was my first really big job. I mean, I had done smaller jobs out in the country, but that was my first big job with really good architects and um, new construction. The site, I mean, some of the things on the site had already been established Mm -hmm. when I took it in that nobody wanted to change, and there wasn't any real reason to. And where do you find your passion in these days? Looking at how to make gardens look as natural. Like, it, it's always been that, though. That's what my daughter left. She said, Mom, I can't believe it. You get people to pay you really well to go to places that are already beautiful and look like you didn't do anything and, make, and, make, and do a job that makes <laughs> that you make it look like you didn't do anything. I said, that's odd. <laughs> but, and that, I just want to keep doing that, you know, that... I can deliver gardens that look so happy, and and I and ideally to keep work, keep learning more about the plant and animal interactions, so that the the amount of maintenance they require mm-hmm. just stays very low. Right. And and the way I can introduce my clients to what they've got. Right. And how? What are three things that a perfect well, perfect is probably not the right word, a landscape or garden should have, in your view? Well, it's really kind of what, it's habitat, and habitat is food, shelter, and water. Mm -hmm. And so my idea of a great garden is habitat for humans, so that you're comfortable and happy in that space, Mm -hmm. but all other life forms are taken into consideration. And since the part of the garden that I do is, I mean, we do put vegetable gardens in for people, but that's, you know, that's a separate sort of thing. Right. But I'm talking about life for all the other life forms. So if we're not going to eat it, why don't we let anything else eat it? That's like, that's what, a, that's what plants are. They're the bottom of the food web. They're there to feed all life forms. Right. So if you kill the caterpillars that are nibbling on your leaves, then you're reducing considerably the chances that you will have birds. 
because that's what birds feed their babies. Right. And so how can people get in touch with Perfect Earth? Or is it, how is it, do, can they contact you? or can They, they can write the to us. Yes, they can. They how can write to us. Just write to info at perfectearthproject.org and one of us will get back to you. Uh, keep an eye out because we've just expanded. Mm -hmm. So because of all this excitement and because it's, it was time for me to step aside right. as, as the administrator. That's not really my best role. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we've hired an amazing executive director who's come to us from a big job he had at Audubon, but he just thinks that this is the, this is the future. There's one statistic that I thought was very shocking, which is that um, a, a statistic that you raised in a previous uh, interview, and that was that 75% of all raindrops contain glyphosates. That's what they say. Can you, yeah, exactly. You haven't even tested all the, but <laughs> all that the, is the a statistic that's out there. And could you could you explain what that means for humans and for animals? It's mostly about agricultural use of glyphosate. So, which for people who are maybe not aware of that term, that's often right. referred to as Roundup, which is the product name. And Roundup is actually an enhanced version of glyphosate. So it has other secret ingredients that make it actually more um, intense, and it's a herbicide. Mm -hmm. right. it, it's, and it's a non-selective herbicide. So that means it just kills, kills what, everything. Kills everything except the GMO plants that have been scientifically Modified altered to be resistant. Right, yeah. Okay. But um, yeah, you spray it on, it dies. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you hit, it kills it. And so it's very handy. Right. You know, for certain things. Effective. Yeah, yes, very effective. It's super easy to use. And when I started in the business, everybody was, we were told it was harmless. And okay. so we assumed it was harmless because it killed plants, not people. But what's happened now is that we've learned about our biomes. And our biome consists of you know, microscopic organisms that are plant and animal and fun, fungi and bacterial. Mm -hmm. And that's what's really running our systems. And it's fascinating. That's my geeky side, too. <laughs> you know, it's really fascinating what they're learning about how this like, incredible world of microbial life is in charge mm -hmm. in our body. And those are the things that, that the pesticides kill, the mm. things that our, our life system is dependent upon right. for healthy functioning. And now, so now we understand why a product, a synthetic product that was made to be very sophisticated and specifically kill certain things, not human, is actually bad for humans. Right. Not a good thing. <laughs> no, it's not a good thing. But the beauty of it is that we have, like, in our own landscapes, we have ultimate choice. We right. can simply say no. Right. Like, no, I do not want that in my landscape because they're really bad for children under five when their bodies and their endocrine system and their nervous systems are forming. Mm -hmm. They're absorbed through your skin, they come in your house, they're persistent. And, and the, the alternative is totally joyous, like of having landscapes that are thriving with birds and butterflies and bees and bugs. Bugs are fascinating. Right. And very few, there's such a tiny percentage of them that might be considered harmful, but if you say, well, it's eating my trees, you say, well, didn't you just have the tree guy come and cut off like a third of okay. your tree and take it to the dump? 
And those caterpillars are just like nibbling the leaves. They're not even making big cuts in the branches. They're just right. nibbling around the edges. And you can't give them that? Right. Like, what? <laughs> and what about if people would be growing their own vegetables and their vegetables would be eaten by, by bugs? What, well, what should they do? You know? there's, there are a lot of um, ways that you can manage insects. I just also, I don't think that very many people now go to the to, to the extent of putting in a vegetable garden in order to spray it with chemicals, because most people are pretty careful about what okay. they're right. ingesting. Of course. And that a home vegetable garden is a great way to get lower cost organic vegetables right, and right. to introduce your family to this beautiful process. Mm -hmm. um, there are bugs that come in. There are um, non-toxic sprays okay. to kill bugs. Uh, they also kill the beneficials. So right. learning more about how to um, control the beneficials. Sometimes it's really about waiting, kind of crossing your fingers and waiting. Hmm. But there are other things like the, 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 the bugs that the cabbage moth lays a, its larvae and it goes into the stem of your squash. Right. And there's like you can't just you can't spray enough, to, so you, you have to tent them if you care, or you can stay on top of it and kill them one by one. You know, it's a small garden. Your right. garden is small, and you get involved, and it's only for one particular window. So, so put, the not, effort, put the effort in. Yeah, and I'm not that fussy mm -hmm. about it. Like, I don't have to grow the biggest tomato. Right. I'm really more a, a, a native plant, flower mm -hmm. person, so right. um, I have vegetables, but they don't get my biggest amount of attention. <laughs> so last question already. If you could have drinks with anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be? Okay, so it's two people. Two. Because they work together. Okay, fine. A man and a woman. <laughs> That's a lot. And um, Lynn Margulies, who was a microbiologist, and James Lovelock, who was a chemist. And uh, they developed the Gaia hypothesis. And that is the, it's a theory that the Earth is, is basically an integrated organism. So it's kind of like our bodies and the whole idea of the biome, mm -hmm. that the Earth, and it's a self-regulating organism. So that the harm that is done to it, it will respond. And they, so the, it, it came about when he, he was the one who discovered the, the ozone hole mm -hmm. and came up with, I, but actually, there's a different pair of scientists who got the Nobel or whichever prize it was for fixing right. it because yeah. he moved on. Right. Uh, but uh, he was just the most impish and wonderful, and I just always wanted to meet him. But he died in July at 103, and I'm not going to get to meet him now. That's a shame. And Lynn Margulis died before I even knew about her um, back in the like, late 70s or something. She died young. And what is something you would ask each of them? Well, of what's course, really of course, everyone, we're all dying about what's going to happen. <laughs> because they predicted. They did, yeah. Things. And so, and in fact, he had a, he got mm, a bit more, I would say, pessimistic and less filtered about scientists are very generally, they're really shy to ever right. say something that isn't provable. Right. But there's nothing we can test because this is happening as it's happening, you know. So right. you can't say I've already like done a, a, a research on it because it's, it's it hasn't happened yet. Right, right. And and so it's all theory, 
And, and so scientists, so, so that's why like we're now hearing, oh, climate change is happening faster than we predicted. That's because by necessity, those predictions have been extraordinarily cautious. Right. And what's happening is happening. Right. And, and so he was very less cautious as he got to be 100 years old and um, didn't really care about like, what people thought of him in his career. And he felt that what we're looking at is by the year, um, by the end of this century, this is scary. 90% um, of the human race will be gone. No. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I'd like to talk That's to it. him about that. Yeah, that, would, that would be an interesting topic. <laughs> and I'd love to see what Lynn has to say about it because she was such an uh, interestingly, uh, amazingly brilliant and unusual thinker. Interesting. Okay. Thank you, Edwina, You're for so this welcome. conversation. Thank you. It's great having you here. Thank you. <laughs>